This is the podcast ICU Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, again, on our discussion of nosocomial infections, our last podcast was on ventilator-associated pneumonia, and today we're going to talk about catheter-related bloodstream infections. We've had a couple of podcasts recently about some of the complications of insertion of central venous catheters, some of the complications, mechanical and otherwise, of the dwelling of central venous catheters. And today we're going to pick on central venous catheters even more, but we're going to focus on catheter-related bloodstream infections. When we think of bacteremia, um, and particularly in a critically ill patient, 75% of all bloodstream infections originate from central venous catheters, and they occur at a frequency of between 1.2 and 5.8 catheter-related bloodstream infections per 1,000 days, and has an estimated mortality between 12 and 25%, and an increase in length of stay from 10 to 40 days. So you can certainly see increases in mortality rate and increases in length of stay associated with central venous catheter infections. Now there are several factors that can cause a catheter-associated bloodstream infection, and most of those factors are modifiable, meaning there are things that we can do to certainly decrease the incidence of catheter-associated bloodstream infections. The first and most obvious is not putting the catheter in. And that really takes some real cultural change. I think if you look at the incentives of individuals in intensive care units, particularly um, the incentives of nursing staff, uh, it is easy, convenient, and in some times uh, safe to have a central venous catheter over peripheral catheter. Certainly when we, come, when we talk about the infusions of um, um, some hypertonic solutions, the infusions of vasopressors, that if a patient would experience a infiltration of the infusate or the medication, that, that could result in some pretty profound um, soft tissue necrosis. And we see this with some regularity. Um, the other real issue uh, that would require a patient to have central venous catheter would be patients who have multiple medications and they may have drug interact not drug interactions, but drugs incompatibility. You're giving a medication that you can't give with another medication. Classic one of that is something like bicarbonate. Bicarbonate it just doesn't play friendly with other medications. So if you have a bicarb infusion going, you have to have multiple sites of access. Uh, you may not have, through peripheral access, adequate uh, um, catheter diameter. So if you need something for like a high flow rate for a patient who has something like a GI bleed or a trauma victim or a, a patient who had a large, perhaps bloody operation and you need the ability to give fluids or blood quickly, um, you may be relegated to using some sort of central venous catheter in the form of uh, like an introducer to be able to give large volumes quickly. But when you think about, particularly in teaching hospitals, what are our incentives, and our incentives typically will drive a lot of our actions, um, it's convenient for us to have central venous catheters. We don't have to keep sticking the patient. We can draw blood from it. That seems like a good thing. Uh, it's a little bit easier because we don't have to worry about these drug incompatibilities. We have enough ports. Uh, and certainly... Um, Resident physicians um, particularly like doing procedures, so they have an incentive to, to do the central venous catheter. And faculty physicians um, may have some monetary or financial incentive to put a catheter in to be able to bill for a procedure. But is that particularly what's best for our patient? We have to reevaluate that. But what are some of those factors that really result in increased rates of infection? Well, one is the migration of 
uh, organisms uh, in around the subcutaneous catheter. So we're talking here about non-tunnel catheters, but what happens is the organisms will track down around the outside of the catheter uh, through the transdermal element and basically create that biofilm on the outside of the catheter. Other uh, sources of contamination and subsequent infection are contamination of the catheter hub. How good are we uh, using things like claves or how well is our sterile technique in accessing the catheter? How many times are we accessing the catheter? Um, is the infusant contaminated? And this was issues in the past with things like TPN or certainly always concerns um, about medications like propofol. This was a concern in the past. As well as the, hematog- the hematogenous seeding from distant infectious uh, sites. So, for instance, if you get a bacteremia from a wound or you develop urosepsis and you have a piece of plastic indwelling uh, in your vascular stream, what's going to happen is that piece of plastic is going to get infected. So, those are things that we can look at and potentially modify to hopefully reduce the, the risk of a central venous catheter infection. Now, it's important to distinguish between an infection of the catheter or the catheter site and an associated bloodstream infection. We can get a um, uh, blood culture back, both in semi-quantitative as well as quantitative, and um, what we've typically done in somebody who's had a catheter-related bloodstream infection is removal of the catheter. Certainly, that's source control. Treating an infection of the blood but leaving the affected catheter site in place doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, if you have redness or potential infection of the catheter and no bloodstream infection, uh, it would be a reasonable argument is that is that is the treatment. You don't need to treat a the treatment for a catheter-related infection without a bloodstream infection is removal of the catheter. If you have a, a potentially infected catheter and a bacteremia, um, certainly the traditional thought is removal of the catheter and treatment of the bacteremia. Now, how do we typically treat the bacteremia? Is we have to insert a new catheter, which begins to seem a little bit like a positive feedback cycle or a dog chasing his tail. There is uh, methods that you can look at quantitatively to determine whether the bacteremia is from the catheter uh, or from another potential source. And this is a method that's used in in some institutions in order to try to preserve particularly tunneled catheters um, by looking at the quantitative blood culture from a a site drawn, say, elsewhere from an antecubital site as well as a blood culture drawn uh, from the catheter and seeing if there's a step-off quantitatively between those two. If there's an infection of the catheter, we should see a higher quantitative count in that blood um, culture than the culture that's drawn uh, peripherally. So how do we define a localized catheter infection? Well, localized catheter infection is defined by having greater than 15 colony-forming units from a catheter tip, subcutaneous segment, or catheter hub. Um, and considered synonymous with a local catheter infection. What's interesting about that definition is you can have greater than 15 colony-forming units. That's the take-home point. But where are you culturing that from? Are you culturing it from the tip, the transcutaneous segment, or the catheter hub? And what's interesting is when you think about how a, a... uh, percutaneous central venous catheter gets infected, it really doesn't get infected so much from the lumen for something like an infusit. It gets really infected because the bacteria come from the skin level and migrate down the external side of the catheter. So, much like if you imagine a, a dipstick in an automobile. So, if your choices of culturing include the catheter hub, the transcutaneous segment, or the catheter tip, 
the the infection is going down basically the outside of the catheter, starting at the catheter hub, going down, migrating distally on that catheter through the transcutaneous segment, and eventually landing at the catheter tip. So you could ask the question: Well, if I took the same catheter and I cultured the tip and I cultured the hub, could I have less than 15 colony forming units at the tip and greater than 15 colony forming units at the hub? Well, the answer would be yes, you could. And so based on how you define it, we could determine how you would, if you would potentially have a catheter-related infection. So this creates a lot of variability, and variability in patient care creates a lot of problems. Variability if, if one physician in an intensive care unit is sending the hub and one physician is sending the transcutaneous segment and the other physician is sending the tip, you could have three different results. And then you're doing that in ICU A, but in the, another ICU, you've got it system. Standardized so that we're, all, we're only sending the tip. It's very difficult to compare outcomes if we're all doing different types of things. So we need probably a little bit more of standardized definition. Now, what is an exit site infection? Well, an exit site infection is erythema or induration with or without concomitant uh, purulence or drainage without a bloodstream infection. So both of these really occur without a bloodstream infection. Now, how do we define a catheter-related bloodstream infection? And this is, we've talked about in the podcast on ventilator-acquired pneumonias, how the CDC has set up what's called the NNIS, or the National Nosocomial Infection Surveillance System. And so here's the definition of a catheter-related bloodstream infection. The presence of a recognized pathogen cultured from one or more positive blood cultures in organisms not related to an infection at another site. Now, there are alternative definitions. Or the presence of a fever greater than 38 degrees centigrade, chills or hypotension, and presence at least of one of the following. Common skin contamination culture from two or more blood samples drawn on separate occasions. Common skin contaminant cultured from at least one blood culture from a patient with an intravenous catheter. A positive antigen test on blood for uh, uh, H-flu, um, H strep pneumo, B-strep, or uh, Neisseria meningitis. And signs and symptoms of positive lab results not related to infection at another site. So that's how you can get your definition um, of a catheter-related bloodstream infection. Now keep in mind that the lines that we use in intensive care units are non-tunneled, non-cuffed catheters. And as we said, these catheters will infect typically on the uh, external surface of the catheter with the bacteria moving distally down the catheter. This is a different um, disease process than tunneled intravascular catheters where you have a long tunnel segment and a vascular cuff. Those catheters typically will get infected intraluminally, so they're getting infected on the internal aspect. So really the disease process is different. The treatment is different. And that's when you may say, well, you know, there's a, a kid I saw who was in a pediatric hospital and they had a Hickman catheter or a Metaport and, and they, they did some high-dose vancomycin and some, some dwells perhaps, and they were trying to able to sterilize that catheter catheter. That's a different disease process. It's an infection of a catheter, yes. It's a different type of an infection. It's a different type of catheter, and the disease process of that infected catheter is different than the typical percutaneous catheters we're using in intensive care units. 
Now, how do we diagnose a bloodstream infection and, and connect that to my central venous catheter in the intensive care unit? Well, the definitions are that a bloodstream infection is considered to be associated with an indwelling catheter if that line was in use during the 48-hour period before the development of the bloodstream infection. So if you've had that catheter within the 48 hours prior to the development of the diagnosis of the bloodstream infection, then we're considering that infection to be associated with that indwelling catheter. If the time interval is greater than 48 hours, there should be really compelling evidence that the infection is related to the central line. That may require some further definition. What we're not saying is that the line was inserted greater than 48 hours. We're saying that if you took the line out on Monday and on Wednesday you're getting a positive bloodstream infection uh, and the patient doesn't have a central venous catheter in that period of time, it, it's probably not appropriate to blame it on the catheter you took out on Monday. You probably need to look for an additional source. You don't want to mislabel something and say, oh, it's related to um, a central line and misdiagnose perhaps a perforated viscous or an ammonia or uro, urinary tract infection. Now, how do we operationalize this? What do we do? Say we have a patient who has a typical uh, intensive care unit line, a non-tunneled catheter, and the patient has an acute fever. What should we do? Well, if there's no hypotension and no organ failure, to get two blood cultures, one peripheral, it's okay to draw one from the line. What isn't so okay is drawing two from the line. You really need to have that peripheral uh, blood culture to assess what's going on systematically. Are we dealing with a localized problem with the catheter, or are we dealing with uh, a bacteremia? If you have no other potential sources of the fever, remove the line, send a culture of the line, and reassess the need whether you need to uh, for your venous access. And if, if you need access in a central line, then reinsert on the line. But really give that some strong consideration. Um, what really I find bothersome is that we put lines in patients, they get infected, and we need to treat line infections. So what do we do? We put new lines in, and eventually those will get infected. So really see whether you cannot treat this patient with peripheral access, if at all possible. Um, if you say, well, we're going to, you know, they're going to burn their veins, even if you can give them a line holiday of a day, I think that puts you in a positive advantage. I don't know that there's a whole lot of science on that, but at least that's certainly we will try to practice, is remove the catheter, get a peripheral, and if we can basically limp along on a peripheral IV for a day, maybe two, prior to reinserting a line, I think that puts you in a better uh, position than having a patient who has a bacteremia, putting a new line in, and having that bacteremia seed your new line. Now, if your uh, cath uh, tip culture comes back greater than 15 colony-forming units, that is a line infection. A line infection is not the same as a catheter-related bloodstream infection. The treatment of a line infection is removal of the line. So if you have blood cultures that are sterile, a positive cath tip, you've removed a line, nothing else is needed. Um, you need to monitor the patient carefully if they've got valvular heart disease or neutropenia um, or the cath tips are positive with something like Staph aureus or Canada. But positive culture, sterile blood, most likely a localized infection, and you treated it by removal of the line. You do not need to continue giving that patient antibiotics. Now, what happens if I have a positive catheter and positive blood cultures? Well, now you've got a catheter-related bloodstream infection, and now you need to consider not only removal of the line, but the institution of IV antibiotic therapy for the bacteremia. 
Now, keep in mind everything we just said. We said we had a patient who had a central line, had an acute fever, but they had no hypotension or no organ failure. And we ended up drawing these cultures, removal of the lines, and blood cultures. What if the patient has hypotension? What if the patient has signs of organ failure? Well, the only difference there is you need to initiate empiric antibiotics. So if a patient has a central venous catheter, they have a fever, and they're hypotensive, and perhaps their creatinine is going up, that would be a patient that you would want to start empiric antibiotic while you're waiting for those cultures to return. When the cultures come back negative, then you can act appropriately and taper your antibiotic therapy or discontinue your antibiotic therapy. But in a patient who's hypotensive or organ dysfunction, um, then what you need to do is you need to start empiric antibiotic therapy. Now, again, we mentioned that in, in some institutions they will leave catheters in place and actually do some qualitative type of, of cultures. If you, if you choose to do that and evaluate in situ with, uh, like we said, the, the qualitative cultures, you've got to draw cultures from each lumen in the multi-lumen catheter. The other thing you need to be mindful, too, is that if you're using catheters that have antiseptic or antibiotic coatings, the um, cultures that you obtain from the culture um, the, the cultures you obtain from the catheter could be false negative when you're doing those qualitative cultures and trying to preserve the, the catheter. So that would give you a potentially false negative. We don't do this as a practice. What we typically do is what we've already mentioned is that we'll draw peripheral blood cultures, one from the line, one peripherally. We'll draw um, um, catheter-related cultures and, and drive our therapy based on whether we have a localized catheter infection or a catheter-related bloodstream infection. So that's where we're going to leave it today is the, how to diagnose a catheter-related bloodstream infection. In the next podcast, we'll get a little bit into more of the actual treatment of catheter-related bloodstream infection as we continue to kind of move forward on this topic of nosocomial infections and what we can do to kind of bend that curve. There's a lot of emphasis on this right now. Certainly, if you work in a hospital ICU... You've likely uh, have received some educational modules on, on what we can do to reduce things like ventilator-acquired pneumonias and catheter-related bloodstream infections. There's a lot of emphasis now looking at um, quality of medical care and these things that are being benchmarks, uh, benchmarked by payers as well as government agencies. So things like ventilator-acquired pneumonias and catheter-related bloodstream infections are being reported to state agencies and will soon be available to consumers in the public on uh, government databases and websites. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.